0: well let 's read together the scriptures as we find them in mark 's Gospel and chapter fifteen mark chapter fifteen and we 're going to read from verse one of this chapter it 's on page one thousand and twenty seven if you 're using one of our church bibles i 'm going to be thinking this morning particularly about verses one 1- 15 of this chapter. Mark chapter 15, beginning to read at the first verse. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them, saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, please turn back in God's word to that passage that we read together uh, just a few moments ago in Mark chapter 15, page 1027 in the Church Bible. Mark 15 verses 1 to 15. It's a time of great political uncertainty. The devolved government is under threat, and the specter of paramilitary violence is never far away, both in the towns and the outlying countryside. It's a time of political maneuvering, power brokers doing deals behind closed doors. There are weak, unprincipled leaders who pay far too much attention to people's demands in their longing for popularity. Sounds like Northern Ireland in 2023, but actually I'm describing first century Judea because all of these things that I've just mentioned form the background in God's providence to the trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate. And as we'll see these things played a crucial part in fulfilling God's long prophesied plan for his son. And there's something encouraging in that, isn't there? But in the midst of all of this political upheaval and mess that we see in our own day, both at home and abroad, it doesn't mean for a moment that God's good and wise purposes are not coming to pass. We may, not, we may not know what God's purposes are, but the one thing that we can be sure of is that no amount of political chaos can derail them. We're looking this morning at the trial of Jesus before Pilate. And perhaps those of you who were here uh, last Sabbath morning for our pre-communion service will be thinking, well hang on a minute, haven't we already done this? Hasn't Jesus already been tried? Isn't that what we looked at at the end of chapter 14 in verses 55 to 65? The highest Jewish council has met They have tried Jesus, if you can call it a trial, and they have passed their verdict on him. They have judged that he has blasphemed, and they have sentenced him to death. The trial is over. It's happened. So why now do we have another trial? And that brings us to the first thing that we need to think about in order to understand this passage, and that is the background to the trial Before Pilate, the background to the trial before Pilate. We need to remember that Judea is an occupied territory at this point in history, the first century AD. It has become a province of the Roman Empire. Now, for various historical reasons that we don't need to worry about this morning, the Jews were given by the Romans a fair bit of freedom, an unusual degree of freedom to govern themselves in civil matters and criminal matters. But the one thing that they couldn't do, the one thing that they were not allowed to do by the Romans was to carry out the death penalty. Only the Roman governor had that power. And so if the Sanhedrin want Jesus put to death, which they absolutely do, then they need Pilate to do it for them. They don't have that power. Now the problem is that blasphemy wasn't a capital crime in Roman law. That's what the Sanhedrin have condemned Jesus for. But the Romans wouldn't have recognized that as deserving of death. And so the Sanhedrin needs to come up with a new charge that will get Pilate's attention and secure the death penalty. And that's why the chief priests and the council are consulting in verse 1 the next morning. That's what they're discussing. They're they're getting together together. And they're asking the question, how can we fix this? How can we wangle this? Now, Mark doesn't tell us what charge they came up with, but it becomes clear, doesn't it, from the question that Pilate puts to Jesus in verse 2. The first thing that he asks, are you the king of the Jews? The Sanhedrin, in other words, have brought Jesus to Pilate, saying that he has set himself up as the king of the Jews. Now, that was a serious charge as far as the Romans were concerned. There hadn't been a king in Judea, this particular part of this area. Uh, There hadn't been a king in Judea since Herod the Great. Kings were forbidden And any claim to kingship would have been seen by Rome as treason, as revolution. The Romans were hypersensitive. They were ultra suspicious at this time in history of any rebel movements within Judea, and especially at the times of the great pilgrim festivals like the Passover, which is unfolding at this very moment at a time when nationalist feelings, when anti-Roman sentiment was running high. It's a little bit like marching season here in Northern Ireland. It was the perfect moment for a rebel leader to light the tinder and start an uprising. So this is an extremely dangerous charge. And if it's proved true that Jesus is, claiming to be the king of the Jews. Well, Pilate really has no choice but to execute Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? But Jesus' answer to that question is ambiguous, isn't it? And it's deliberately ambiguous. You have said so. He can't say yes or no. It's a little bit like the question, if you ask somebody, have you stopped shoplifting yet? Answer yes or no. And if you say yes, you incriminate yourself. If you say no, you incriminate yourself. Whichever you answer, you're going to be in the wrong. Jesus can't answer the question with a yes or a no. He doesn't deny it, because he is the king of the Jews. But he's not the king of the Jews in the way that Pilate thinks. He's not the king of the Jews in the way that the the Sanhedrin are implying. He's not the leader of some resistance movement, and so he can't affirm it either. And so he gives this deliberately ambiguous answer. And so Pilate calls for witnesses. And of course, the chief priests are ready, aren't they? Verse 3 tells us that they accuse Jesus of many things. And yet when Pilate gives Jesus the opportunity to defend himself, to Pilate's amazement, he says nothing. Now that puts Pilate in a difficult position. Because if a man doesn't defend himself, then he will be pronounced guilty. That was the law. That was the procedure. And Pilate doesn't want to condemn Jesus. Pontius Pilate had many, many faults. But he wasn't a fool. He had been governor of Judea from 26 until 36 AD. He is an experienced man. He's a shrewd politician, and there are at least two reasons why he wants to let Jesus go. It's obvious on the one hand from Jesus' manner that he is not the revolutionary freedom fighter that the Sanhedrin are making him out to be. Pilate has seen plenty of those He knows that Jesus doesn't fit the profile. Pilate has never encountered anyone like Jesus before, and he's convinced that he is innocent. Verse 14, Pilate said to the crowd, Why? Why do you want me to crucify him? What evil has he done? The implication is, I know that this man hasn't done any evil. And then, on the other hand, he knows very well that the Sanhedrin are using him for their own purposes. He knows that they hate Rome. He knows that they're not going to hand over a revolutionary leader out of loyalty to the Roman Empire. He knows exactly what's going on here. Verse 10 tells us that he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. Pilate knows that they're trying to play him, and he doesn't want any part of it. So it should have been an open and shut case. Pilate has absolute power here. He has the power to condemn Jesus or to acquit Jesus. So why doesn't he just release him? Why doesn't he just let Jesus go and tell the Sanhedrin to go and chase themselves? And the answer to that question is because Pilate's political position at this point in time is very, very fragile. There had been several recent serious blots on his record, situations that he had handled extremely badly. He had caused uh, no small amount of unnecessary trouble in an already troubled province. So he has to walk very, very carefully. And then on top of that, it's Passover. And Jerusalem is packed with thousands upon thousands upon thousands of extra fanatical Jews who have come into the city for Passover and whose nationalist feelings are at fever pitch. And the smallest spark could set off a chain reaction, an uncontrollable explosion. And so Pilate has to tread very, very carefully here. And so he tries a number of things to free Jesus. Now Mark only tells us about one of the things that he tries. He tries to give the decision to the people. This is the custom, as Mark tells us, uh, at Passover to release one prisoner that the people ask for. And Pilate assumes that given the choice between Jesus and Barabbas, the people will choose Jesus rather than this notorious terrorist and murderer. But, verse 11, the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. This is a very different crowd from the crowd of pious Galilean pilgrims who had welcomed Jesus into Jerusalem with shouts of Hosanna a week earlier. This crowd is made up, it is stacked with Sanhedrin supporters. And obviously, Pilate is left in a very weak position. Having gone down this line uh, of giving the crowd responsibility for the outcome, then it is, of course, very hard for him to take that back. And so, in the end, we're told, in verse 15, Pilate wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Now what we need to remember in the midst of all of that is that all of these things, all of these circumstances that I've just mentioned, are ordained by God in his sovereign power wisdom. Rome's presence in Judea, the fact that Judea is an occupied territory, Pilate's track record, Pilate's character, the fact that he is the governor at this time and not someone else, all of the problems that he had created in recent previous years, all of these details we're in the lord's hands it's not that god was dealt this hand and had to try to make the best of it he he's presented with this very difficult uh, less than ideal set of circumstances and he has to just try and work with it no this is exactly what the lord had ordained From all eternity. These precise circumstances, evil men, weak leaders, intimidation, and threats, and mob mentality. God ordained all of these things, and He overrules all of these evil things for His good and perfect purposes. And that is true, isn't it, of all history. If it's true of this moment of history, then it is certainly true of all history, big and small, globally and individually and personally. And that is really comforting, isn't it? That is so helpful for you and me when we're tempted to despair because of circumstances, it's so easy to feel as though somehow God is just being overwhelmed and all these evil things, this terrible rising tide of, of evil is just too much for him. It's easy to, to be tempted to despair by the things that we see in Westminster and in Stormont. It's easy to be tempted to despair because of everything associated with the COVID pandemic when we look at uh, Russia and Ukraine and China and Taiwan, it's good to remember that the Lord is in control of absolutely every part, every moment of history. And these things may be evil. These things may be chaotic, these things that are going on. But they're not going to derail the Lord's purposes. They cannot derail the Lord's purposes. And God used these circumstances in Mark 15 to bring about the greatest possible imaginable blessing that there could ever be for the universe and for the human race. And if he could do that then, then he can certainly do that today. Disasters, personal tragedies and catastrophes God really does work all things together for good. That is not to say that these things are good. These things in Mark 15 are not good. These are evil men or weak men doing evil things. But God is able in his sovereign wise majesty to take all these things and bring the most enormous amount of good out of them. And what he has done here, he does again and again and again and again. Countless times. In your own experience, isn't that what he has done? Some of the hardest times of your life have actually been used by God to be times of the greatest blessing. He makes the veil of weeping, the veil of Baca, into a place where fresh water springs well up. We need to trust that that is true. So, the background to the trial before Pilate. And then, secondly, I want us to think about the significance of the trial before Pilate. The significance of the trial before Pilate. What does all of this mean? Because there are elements here in the trial before Pilate that are highly significant. Remember how Jesus told his disciples on the road to a mess that they ought to have understood that the Messiah had to suffer and die. Why ought they to have understood those things? Why should they have known that? How could they have known that the Messiah was to suffer and die? And Jesus explains that it's because the Old Testament scriptures spoke of his sufferings and his glory. It's all there in the scriptures. And this trial is part of those sufferings. And when we read it in the light of the Old Testament, this passage throbs with meaning and significance. Let me mention two things First of all, it shows us Jesus rejected by the world. Jesus rejected by the world. Because taken together with the previous trial before the Sanhedrin, what we are seeing here in Mark 14 and Mark 15 is the official, formal, deliberate trial rejection of the Messiah by the world. It's not a coincidence that God in his providence ordered that Jesus had to be tried before a Jewish court and a Gentile court. It's not a coincidence. As we've just been thinking, God could have arranged history differently. He was the one ordaining these circumstances. God could easily have ordained that the Sanhedrin still had the power to execute a condemned man so that they didn't need to go to Pilate. They didn't need to have anything to do with Pilate. They could pass uh, the the, the capital verdict themselves. God could have arranged that Judea wasn't occupied by the Romans. But that's not the way God arranged it. God ordained that Jesus would appear before both the official representatives of the Jews and the official representative of the Gentiles and that he would be rejected and condemned by both. The Sanhedrin in chapter 14 and Pilate in chapter 15 between them Stand for the whole world. Jews and Gentiles united together, conspiring against the Messiah. Now, does that ring a bell at all? Does that remind you of anything in the Old Testament? The whole world united in conspiracy against the Lord and his Messiah This is the fulfillment of Psalm 2, isn't it? And in fact, Luke spells that out for us in Acts chapter 4, verses 25 to 28. Just listen to what uh, it says there in Acts. You said, speaking to the Lord, through David your servant by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Quotation from Psalm 2. And then the explanation. Verse 27. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Luke explains that this, what we've just been thinking about, the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin, and before Pilate. That is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. This day is the day that the people of God joined forces with the Gentiles in rebelling against the Lord and his Messiah. Who killed Jesus? The whole world, Jews and Gentiles alike, they raged and they Plotted, And they set themselves and they took counsel together against the Lord and his Messiah, the King of the Jews. And so the whole world, Jew and Gentile, stands guilty before the Lord. Jesus rejected by the world. But then the other thing that we see here is Jesus' silence before the world. Jesus' silence before the world. And that is something that Mark particularly emphasizes. Jesus only says two words to Pilate, two words in the original language. We're told that Pilate found this astonishing. Why would a man on trial for his life not defend himself. If someone didn't defend himself, the procedure was that he was given three opportunities to do so, and if he still didn't defend himself, then he was automatically condemned. Why did Jesus not defend himself? He could have easily. You read the Gospels and you see how he bested his opponents over and over again. No matter what they threw at him, no matter what clever question they cooked up to try and trap him in his words, again and again he outsmarted them. He could easily have saved himself if he would wanted to save himself. These false witnesses, even Pilate could see through them. They would have been no match for the Lord if he had chosen to refute them. And yet, he's silent. Why is he silent? The Old Testament suggests two reasons. He's silent because he's trusting himself to the Lord. He's trusting himself to the Lord. He's like the innocent sufferer in the Psalms, who is silent because of his faith in God. One writer says Jesus, like the righteous sufferers of old, faces his torment without sniveling or pathetic efforts at self defense, without abusing his tormentors, and without complaint to God. His silence. Means his attitude is one of trust in his Father. So the Lord says nothing because he's entrusting himself entirely to the Lord. It's what Peter says in First Peter 2:23. "When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He doesn't try to defend himself because he knows that the Father will vindicate him when the time is right. And Peter says in 1 Peter 2 that that is an example for us to follow. Christians are not supposed to be people who are always standing on their rights and defending themselves constantly, we're meant to follow the example of the Lord Jesus. Peter says, He left you an example so that you might follow in His steps. When we are treated unfairly, and when we suffer, we're to trust that God will vindicate us at the right time. And that takes a huge burden off us, doesn't it? Trying... To protect our precious little reputations. We don't need to worry about our reputations. Doesn't matter what people say. Doesn't matter how people slander us. Doesn't matter what lies are told about us. If Jesus could entrust himself and his reputation to God here, at this moment, in this setting, well, then you and I can certainly leave our case with the Lord. So that's one reason why he's silent it's because he's entrusting himself to the Lord but then secondly much more importantly his silence marks him out as the suffering servant of the Lord who lays down his life for others his silence marks him out as the suffering servant who sacrifices himself for others. Isaiah 53 and verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. His mouth. The Lord's suffering servant, the Messiah, will come and he will be oppressed and he will be afflicted. But he won't speak, he won't say a word. He opened not his mouth. Why would you defend yourself? You make an argument in court to try to escape punishment. That's why you defend yourself, isn't it? It's because you want to get off. But Jesus isn't trying to get off. He's not trying to escape punishment. He's going willingly to death because that's the only way that he can save you and me, his people. And he's silent because he's pleading guilty to the charges against him. Not on his own account, but as the sin bearer of his people. As the one who came to stand in the place of his people. He's been charged by the Sanhedrin with blasphemy. And he's been charged before Pilate with treason. And he's not guilty of either of those things. But Adam blasphemed. And Adam committed cosmic treason when he disobeyed and rebelled against God in Eden. And Jesus has come as the second Adam to pay for the first Adam's guilt. The guilt that he has brought upon himself and all his descendants. So why does the Lord Jesus not plead his innocence here to blasphemy and treason? Surely it's because as our sin bearer, he's not innocent because he's bearing the guilt of our sins, our blasphemy, our many blasphemies. And our treason. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So we should give thanks and praise every day for our Saviour's silence. He kept silent here for us, He was rejected and condemned for our sake, so that we can offer the praise of our lips today, we can open our mouths and make a joyful noise to the Lord and know that he will hear us and receive us for Christ's sake. Amen. Pilate asks Jesus the question in verse 2, Are you the king of the Jews? And that question is repeated Five times more in the next 30 verses. And it seems that Mark is putting that question to us as the readers of his gospel. What do you think about Jesus Christ? Is Jesus the King of the Jews? Nobody in this passage thinks that he is. Pilate doesn't believe the charge. He writes on a sign above the cross, this is the king of the Jews, but he probably does it more to annoy the Jews than as a confession of his own faith. He speaks better than he knows, but he still doesn't believe. The Jewish leaders and the crowd certainly don't believe that Jesus is the king of the Jews. This is just a convenient way for them to land Jesus in political trouble. They wanted a very different kind of king. They wanted a king like Barabbas who would fight battles for them against Rome and save them from their political earthly enemies. The tragedy is that they don't realize that Jesus is their king And that he is fighting a battle for them, a far greater battle, right before their very eyes against an infinitely more deadly enemy than Rome, and that he is establishing a kingdom that is far more glorious and mighty than anything that Rome could ever have provided. The soldiers, in verses 16 to 20, as we'll see this evening, they mock jesus ruthlessly because he claims to be the king of the jews and yet this question keeps coming back to us again and again is jesus the king of the jews is he the messiah is he the son of god in the flesh i wonder what your response to that question is this morning Maybe you're like Pilate. You would say that Jesus is the king of the Jews. You would be prepared to write it on a sign, but you don't really believe it. Your actions don't bear it out. Or maybe you're like the Jews in this passage. You want a different kind of king, a king that will be more to your liking more to your taste, more easygoing, more of a buddy, more of a mate than a king, less uncompromising, Uh, maybe a king who's a little bit less focused on spiritual blessing, a king who can do more for you materially, who can give you more fun, more entertainment, more pleasure. Or perhaps... There might even be someone here this morning who's like the soldiers, and you just mock Jesus, possibly not openly, you don't quite have the courage to do that, but certainly in your own little echo chamber, or even just in the echo chamber of your own tiny little heart, you mock Jesus, and you don't take him seriously for a moment. Or, as I suspect is the case for the vast majority of us today, do you truly believe that Jesus is the King of the Jews, the King of kings? You say and you believe with all your heart and soul and mind and strength today that he is Lord. And you bow your knee gratefully and gladly and willingly as your king, and you serve and you worship and you honor and you obey him to the best of your ability in the strength that he provides in all things. If that's your response, as I know it is for most of you today, then he welcomes you to eat and drink at his table this morning. Amen. Want us to think for a few moments about how the exchange of Barabbas for Jesus is such a beautiful picture of the gospel. And again, surely it's no accident, it's not a coincidence that the details of the story happened the way that they did. There were many things that happened in the Passion story that we're not told about. The gospel writers have been very selective. But these things are told to us because they happened precisely the way that God wanted them to and they are loaded with meaning and significance. And surely the choice of Barabbas by the Jews is another aspect of what we have seen already, the official, formal rejection of Jesus by the world. The Jews chose a murderer rather than the Messiah. And that is part of Christ's humiliation, another part of his humiliation. It's further evidence, isn't it, of the horrible twistedness and blindedness of sinful human nature, that they would choose Barabbas rather than the holy Son of God. But it's hard not to see a deeper significance in what is taking place here. The innocent Jesus swaps places with a guilty sinner. Barabbas goes free because Jesus takes his place on the cross. Barabbas lives because Jesus dies. And isn't that the whole point of Jesus' mission? It isn't Could you ask for a better picture, a better symbol of what Jesus came to do? Isn't it so fitting and so appropriate that the cross, the very cross on which Jesus was crucified was intended for someone else? Jesus went to the cross because he wasn't just taking the place of one man, Barabbas, but a countless multitude. And that's how the Lord's ministry began, isn't it? When he formally took up the task the mission of being the Messiah, as he stood in the Jordan River that day and was baptized with a baptism of repentance. Why did Jesus need to be baptized with a baptism of repentance? He had no sins to confess like everyone else who went down into the Jordan to be baptized by John. He was baptized because he was symbolically taking upon himself liability for our sins. He was standing in the Jordan River that day as the sin bearer. And now here in Mark 15, what he did that day symbolically, he is now doing literally. He is taking the place of sinners, dying the death of sinners, washing away the sin of sinners with his own blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so we are forgiven today because he was condemned. We are blessed because he was cursed. We are accepted because he was rejected and forsaken. We live because he died. By nature, in the sight of God, we are all in the place of Barabbas, aren't we? That is our position when we come into this world. We are guilty, condemned sinners who deserve hell. We are without excuse. We are without hope of rescue. We are just like Barabbas sitting in our prison cell waiting for the moment of execution to come. That is the state of every one of us by nature. And then the good news comes someone has taken your place and you are free to go. The Son of God himself has paid in full your ransom. He gave his life so that you can live. No matter what you've done, the blackest, ugliest sin can be forgiven because he died in your place. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, Released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord our God, we thank you again for our Savior and our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that in him We are blessed. We thank you, Lord God, that in his life, his death, and in his resurrection, and in his ascension to glory, and in his coming again to judge the living and the dead, to bring in that new universe, that new heavens, new earth, that home of righteousness, that in all these things we are blessed, that we have nothing to fear, that we don't need to be apprehensive about the Lord's return in judgment because we are blessed in him because of all that he has done for us. We thank you that we, like Barabbas, go free because Jesus, your son, died. And we pray, Lord God, that having been reminded of these things by your word and by the sacrament in sign and symbol as well as in the scriptures, we pray that we will take these things to heart and that we will believe them and that we will cling to them and that we will love them and that we will live in the light of them more and more in the days ahead. Please bless us now, we pray